Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Spectrum Business works with small businesses nationwide, so we know that running your own business means doing it all. Marketing, sales, inventory, customer service, and more. Spectrum One for Business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month. Get fast, reliable internet, advanced Wi-Fi with security shield, and a free mobile line for one low price. Stay connected and do it all with Spectrum One for Business. Only $49.99 a month. Go to spectrum.com slash business to learn more. Restrictions apply. Services not available in all areas. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. Where do you want to start? Well, okay, I think this is a good one to start with Kevin Montgomery, because this is something I think you've been tweeting about. Babis, the ex-Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, has played a nasty and populist campaign. But it looks as though he's been beaten by Pavel, an ex-NATO general. Is this a good result for Europe, Alistair? I think it is. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's won, and he's won convincingly. And I think it is. um, Babis is the arch-populist. Pavel, we shall see. But certainly he was the one projecting himself as a, you know, serious, understanding the challenges, pretty sound on Ukraine, uh, pretty sound on Europe. So, yeah. Good, good result, I would say. It's, it's terrific, isn't it? And, and remember, we, we raised it in the podcast a few weeks ago because the key question had been initially around the prime minister position where Babis had been kicked out. And then he tried to do a, a fight back for this present position. He's been beaten there too. So that definitely, definitely a good, good direction. Here's a historical, a historical question. Well, historical related today. Claire Mulley. In 1923, Blimey, yeah. Shropshire woman, Eglantine Jeb, drafted the statement of children's human rights that evolved into the UNCRC. Blimey. 100 years later, 200 unaccompanied asylum-seeking children have disappeared from Home Office Commissioned Hotels here in Britain. Where is the outrage? What is being done? Have you been following this one? Yeah, no, I have. But firstly, I didn't know that a Shropshire woman had been at the heart of this. I'm afraid I have from a very American perspective, always given the credit to Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm, well, Eglin, th- listen, if Claire Mully is telling us the truth, Eglantine Jeb is your man. Well, tell us a little bit about the story for this. I, I first was aware of this, not through the media, not through anything really. I didn't have any sense of it until I saw a speech. We talk sometimes about you don't see any good speeches in Parliament. Peter Kyle, Brighton MP, Labour MP, Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, yep. He did a really, really powerful, passionate speech about this and essentially was asking that same question from Claire, you know, what is being done? There is an inaction. So what's happened is that lots of asylum seekers have been put into hotels. And as you and I were discussing yesterday, Rory, um, a lot of the overseas development budget now is actually spent on housing people in, in hotels within the UK. And there appears to be a pretty major trafficking operation going on so lots of these young men in particular and but they are minors have, have literally disappeared and and 
presumably they've disappeared because they want to go and get work or they, I mean, what, do we know what's happening? Well, there appears to be very little action from the government side in terms of trying to find them or find out what's happened. But the the assumption is that they've been they've been sort of you know assumed into organised crime or into trafficking. Um, so it's truly horrific. And the question there from from Claire, where is the outrage? It, I do think it says something truly awful about us as a country that we don't seem to care very much. And I must admit, when I watched Suella Braverman and that guy Gullis, I mean, the, the, he as an education minister is just beyond belief to me. He's, he's the guy who, when this was raised in Parliament, shouted across the chamber, well, they shouldn't have come here in the first place, should they? And, and he's now had to issue a massive apology, hasn't he? Well, you say, I don't think it is an apology. I think apparently that's a fake account, Rory. Oh, really? <laughs> apparently it's a fake account <laughs> apologising on his behalf. Oh, my goodness. I don't believe he has. But both of them, him and Braverman, both posing the other day in front of Holocaust Educational Trust posters, and looking all sort of pious and talking about, you know, we must never let this stain on humanity return. But, you know, I'm not remotely equating this with the Holocaust, but I am saying that there is something truly awful that we seem as a country, and certainly as a government, genuinely not to care about the fact that asylum seekers have been kidnapped from hotels that are meant to be under the control of the British government. Yeah. And by the way, we get we get a lot of love, Rory, for our our film and book recommendations. I don't know if you've seen The Swimmers, but I watched The Swimmers the other night. Oh, go on, tell us about that. Yep. It's incredible. It's a true story about two Syrian young women who left Syria when it really, really, really got dangerous. The film of their journey across the sea, ending up in Lesbos, and then eventually walking to Germany and going through some absolute horrors. And I won't do spoiler alert, as I sometimes do, but the the young woman, um, the better of the two in terms of swimming, she ends up swimming in the Olympics. Um, and it's a true story. But I really, really, really do hope that somebody puts it in front of Suella Braverman and all, all those who demonize refugees. When you watch the film of the crossing that these girls went through, and okay, it's a movie, but they've written books and they've told the story and this is, you know. So when we think about these people coming across in boats, I mean, I think this should be part of all of us, Home Secretaries and Prime Ministers included, who understand the humanity of those people. And uh, by the way, listeners, if you want to get links to these wonderful cultural references that we make, we are sending out this weekly newsletter that seems to be going down well with our trip members. I've got a small cultural reference. I've been reading a book this week by someone called Thomas Ashbridge, and it's yeah. called The Gracious Knight. And it's about this incredible figure called William Marshall, who was the greatest knight in medieval England. His story is mind-blowing. He essentially was the man who helped negotiate Magna Carta and published it and pushed it out there. He saved England from becoming a colony of France in the early 13th century. He put his life on the line defending four kings once, one after another and finally saved the nine-year-old Henry III. And he did it all with the most incredible kind of sense of loyalty, honor, chivalry. So I, I would recommend everybody, please, The Greatest Knight by Thomas Ashbridge. Okay, well, I, I, I don't know whether this is... I'm reading uh, Michel Barnier's Secret Brexit Diary. Oh, very good. <laughs> Call me obsessed. Do you think we could interview him, Alistair? I think, I think that might, might even be on the cards and might even be in the diary very, very soon, Rory. Very good, very <laughs> That's good. That's why sure. I'm reading it. Very good. Now, here's one for you. 
And this comes, did this come from Discord? That's the other thing members get is the Discord debate, which I've been, you haven't dipped in yet, have you? I've been dipping in and out. I can see you in the Discord debate. I must get in there. Yeah. Um, so Tim, when you leave government, does the work find you or do you have to look hard to find it? I assume it's the former. And if so, how do you decide what to take morally, partially, politically, etc.? Well, the answer, I think, is that it's actually much tougher for XMPs to get jobs than people realise, partly because, uh, well, there are a number of changes. One of them is that back in the day, in the 60s and 70s, um, they traditionally went on to run nationalised industries because the governments controlled those industries. They could easily push ex-conservative Labour MPs into run British Rail or run British Gas or whatever else they were doing, the coal board. The second thing is, of course, the reputation of MPs has collapsed. So it's no longer a big thing for boards to want to have ex-MPs with their knighthoods on their board. That that was a thing, I think, in the 70s and 80s. It's not really now. It doesn't help you if you're running a big company to have an MP on your board. So many of my former colleagues are actually in trouble. I remember the guy who I took over from in DEFRA making a joke, which wasn't really a joke, that he was going to be going back to stacking the shelves at Tesco's when he lost his job. Who was that? Uh, he was called Dan, and he was the Liberal MP down in Cornwall who'd lost his seat. I don't know whether he quite did that, but before he'd gone into politics, he'd been working in the Cornish Pasty factory in Bodmin. So one of the things that many MPs end up being drawn into is lobbying and public affairs jobs, which is a bit depressing. You sit in, I remember this as an MP, you sit in the House of Commons portcullis coffee shop, which is a sort of strange thing that looks like a Norwegian airport terminal where you get really horrible cappuccino. And you'd see your ex-colleagues very politely making their way from table to table with strange sort of uh, packets of leaflets saying, Rory, can I have a word with you? I'm I'm now representing this company. And my assumption usually was that it was a pretty hopeless thing, that they weren't really hoping to get anywhere. They were just hoping to go back to their company and say, I spoke to four MPs and hope that the company somehow thought that that was going to make a difference to the world. But it was pretty sort of depressing, debilitating yeah. work. So. There's the kind of superstars, people who are three or four MPs of each generation, the kind of William Hagues. Well, George Osborne makes a fortune. George Osborne, he? who was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So I mean, he's, he's, pretty, he's done pretty well for somebody who's, you know, smashed the economy with austerity, hasn't he, Rory? Yeah. So I think if you're Prime Minister or Chancellor or Foreign Secretary, yeah. you can still go on to these amazing careers after. And obviously, Tony Blair has made an incredible fortune after he's left being Prime Minister. But for most MPs, including many, many ministers, um, I think they really do struggle to get work. Yeah. Here's one from Paul Smith, which relates to your point about the reputation of MPs. Is it time to get rid of the ridiculous labels of honourable and especially right honourable, given the litany of scandals <laughs> showing so many MPs and ministers as being plainly anything but honourable? Well, I think the answer is that it's always been a joke, that, hasn't it? And, and it's stuck into the language of the House of Commons, partly as part of all these traditions, which are about stopping people putting knives to each other's throats. Mm. So famously, there's a space between the two benches, which is meant to be a sword select, so we can't actually stab our swords to each other. So we call each other honourable, partly to take some of the drama out of the debate. But I don't think MPs, even in the, in the early 20th century, when they were doing Marconi scandals and all the horrors of the Lloyd George administration, were ever particularly honourable. Okay, here's a question coming back at you. Um, actually, we've had some lovely questions this week. But here's one, Steve JT. On nearly every episode, Rory will say, we'll have to do an episode on that in reference to a topic that's touched on, but there's never a follow-up stroke deep dive. Would it be good, Alistair, to have an episode on one topic 
perhaps with a guest or expert and really pick something apart. What do you think about that? Yeah, possibly. But I, I think that particularly when we're doing the Q&A, I always feel really bad because we get thousands of questions and we only answer half a dozen or sometimes 10 or 12. And yeah, look, I think we did a bit of a, de- a, bit of a deep dive on Nagordo Karabakh. Yep. We're, going, we're going to be interviewing Fiona Hill in the near future. Yep. The wonderful working class woman from the northeast of England who became a senior advisor in the White House. It's a great story anyway. Um, but why don't we decide on a couple of foreign policy areas on that one and we do a bit of a deep dive? Russia, I suppose, would be a good one to do with her. Yeah. But then, then even as I say that, I think, no, but I also want to know what she thinks about Latin America and I want to know what she thinks about Asia. And so I'll tell you what I'll do, Roy. Yeah. You're always saying to me, you're always saying to me, that you let me off too lightly about Iraq. Yeah. So why don't we do, at some point, we'll do a deep dive, just you and me and, on Iraq. Good. Let's, let's do that, because we're coming up to the 20th, 20th anniversary. Yeah. Now, if you're going to throw, I'm, yeah. I'm going to throw this one at you, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> this is somebody with the wonderful name Gibson Fender. Oh, right. It sounds like a guitar, doesn't it? It what's, does. What's sounds it like a beautiful guitar. Yeah. yeah. He says this, and I think this is something that, Far more people think than uh, the media or the political classes really understand. New Labour, Rory, under Tony Blair, was the best government in 50 years. It's massively underappreciated, even at times from its own members. Discuss. Well, after my loving um, with, with Alan Milburn, I'm coming round to that view. Excellent. That's enough. That's all you need to say. That's all you need to say. <laughs> okay. I'll leave it at that then. <laughs> On the other hand, here's somebody arguing the other view. So Johnny Sells, does Alistair see a parallel between the current government's plan to scrap the BTEX and Blair's disastrous target to get 50% of the country to go to university? When will the UK recognise the value of vocational education? What do you think about that? Well, I think that I, d- I think we should recognise the value of vocational education, and, uh, and I do. But I, I, I think Tony's, that goal and that aspiration, I think was a really, really important message about what sort of country we want to become. Um, I don't accept that was a disaster. Okay. All right, let's uh, go for a little break. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences 
tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. And here we are back from the break. Alistair, here's Rob Hughes. This is quite niche, this question. You're going to have to make some sense of this for me. Okay. Did Alistair enjoy his visit to Portman Road? Looks like he was enjoying himself. Hopefully next time he's there, it'll be for a premiership fixture. Come on, t- t- explain for those listeners what that means. What, what does that question mean? Do you know what Portman Road is? It's, it's the Ipswich Stadium or something. That's it. That's it. So it's <laughs> that I, I suspect that's one of three people who was sitting in the row directly in front of the, the press box, which is where I was doing the commentary for the Burnley website, Clarets Plus. Wait a sec. So do you, you're like um, when I watch Harry Potter and there's a guy doing the commentary on the Quidditch match. Is your voice echoing around the stadium or it's just on... No, it's just on this I, I, website. Rory, I can't believe you, you didn't say when I'm watching Croatia against Brazil, you're the, you're the Gary Neville or you're the Roy Keane. I am the Gary Neville of the Burnley FC website, okay? Amazing. Fantastic. Phil Bird is the proper commentator who's brilliant, and I'm the guy sitting next to him. It wasn't the greatest game. It was a nil-nil draw, but there was a bit of a disaster, actually, Rory. As I was doing the commentary, I didn't realise, and it's probably my fault because I'm such a technological idiot, but it transpires that Phil and I, for the second, the whole of the second half, were literally talking to ourselves (laughs) (laughs) because something had gone wrong with the machinery and somebody had, I don't know whether it was sabotaged by an Ipswich fan, but somebody had (laughs) unplugged something. Cheerfully chatting to each other. And because we weren't looking at our phones, we didn't see any of the messages that were saying, can't hear you, can't hear you, can't hear you. Where's the commentary gone? So I didn't really enjoy that. Here's a question on PMQs. Prime Minister's questions for people who, who are not in the UK. Chima from Discord asked, what was it like for me during Cameron versus Miliband, having to be forced to sit in Parliament and watch PMQs every week? And then I guess for Alistair, for you, do you believe in any reforms to make PMQs better? Personally, give every MP a limit of one question, including the opposition leader, giving more time for backbench questions. And the part of the opposition leader versus PM is pure political theatre, pre-scripted questions, responded with pre-scripted answers. The public deserves better. What's your view on PMQs? I watched PMQs recently with a classroom of 14-year-olds, most of whom had never seen it before. And it was really, really interesting to watch it with them because the first bit, they thought, oh, this is quite interesting. And by the end, they were like, oh, my God, this is awful. It really was quite instructive. Um, I think I've been really disappointed that I thought Rishi Sunak, when he came in, would have tried to change it a bit and actually played into the fact that Keir Starmer tries to be a bit more serious and a bit more forensic. But he's very quickly gone into the sort of, you know, PMQs as theatricals and PMQs not really being about answering questions. I wish that the speaker, I don't know what the rules are for the speaker. Uh, I know the speaker's there to keep order and make sure that the rules of the House are obeyed. But I do think the public feel that increasingly questions aren't answered. And I think that's a real problem. Well, one of the things that really irritated me, if I was looking for a big reform, my, the first thing that struck me when I came in is that there should be alternate sessions, one session really domestic, focused on your constituency, and then the next week, or maybe once a month, a session that focused on big national and international issues, because I got so fed up with going into PMQs when there was something really big happening, horror in Afghanistan, 
big national scandal and hearing MP after MP stand up and say, will the Prime Minister congratulate my local football club that just won this? Or Mm. will the Prime Minister please congratulate the students of Billington Primary School who just got to the second round of this, that and the other? And I can see why they're doing it. Many, many MPs on every side of the house are just interested in getting a little story in their local newspaper for what they said in PMQs. But it's a total waste of the session. It's a disgrace Mm. and they should feel ashamed of themselves. And if they won't stop doing it, I'd like to have one PMQs a month where you're not allowed to do that. Mm. Or I, th- I think the, I, I don't agree with the question, by the way, that the that the leader of the opposition should be restricted to one question. I think it's really important that you see both prime minister and leader of the opposition kind of go at each other over a over a sustained period. And if you remember, when we came in in 1997, Betty Boothroyd was speaker. And at that point, there were two sessions of PMQs a week. Ah, Yes. Yeah, yeah. And they were 15 minutes each. And and I think the leader of the opposition got three questions and we persuaded Betty to to agree to a change. And I think the Tories were sort of broadly up for it as well. Other parliaments, I mean, you know, I think I'm right that Jacinda Ardern and certainly the Australian parliament, they have to do it every day that parliament sits. I think the Irish parliament is the same in the, in the Doyle. I think the, the Taoiseach has yeah. to go there every day and answer questions. And contrast, of course, is the United States where they are mesmerized by PMQs because they can't imagine a US president having to go through that every every week. I mean, there is a nice bit of sort of leveling there, of forcing Mm. a prime minister to stand there and take the abuse in a way that a US president wouldn't. I I can remember when I was a journalist covering politics, it was very, very rare that you didn't, out of PMQs, get something genuinely significant to go off and write about. I think these days it's it's less common. And I think that's because I do think Sunak has, has followed in the sort of Johnson Trust tradition of, of really just sort of seeing it as something you've got to get through and not really answer the questions. And, and I think he's making a mistake. I think he should be engaging in the questions much more than he does. Um, here's, a, here's a question which I, I think will throw you off balance. But we'll be interested to see Ooh. what you make of it. So it's from Siddharth Kare. And Siddharth asks, politics across academia, particularly Ivy League and elite Russell Group universities, is often taught from a predominantly left-leaning bias stroke presumption. Why is this and how could this be rectified? What do you make of that? Is that true, though? Well, that's what I've, I thought you were probably going to question the question. Yeah. Am I doing a re-smog here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably true that broadly speaking, most academics tend to lie a bit to the left, and most teachers tend to lie a bit to the left. No, yeah, possibly, possibly, but I, but I think they, I think unless they're driven by their politics, I think an awful lot of them compensate for that. I think at the moment, everywhere you go, you get the feeling people don't like the government very much, and you know we haven't talked about the teachers' strike; they're going on strike. Um, but I don't know. I think maybe it's maybe more so in America. Would that be the true? You know that better than I do. Definitely, that's the complaint of the of the sort of right in America. I think it is true that when the Conservative government came in in 2010, we definitely had a feeling that Labour had been very, very successful in doing this trick, which was called the march through the institutions. We felt that a loss of the very senior jobs in non governmental organisations, in in cultural life, in educational life were dominated by people who were broadly speaking sympathetic with the new labor project. And one of the things the conservatives tried to do when they came in was to try to replace them with people who were a little bit more to the right. And I think they've done a bit of that, but it was surprisingly difficult because it turned out that a loss of the candidates for these jobs, often very, very well qualified candidates for the jobs, tended to be more from the left 
than from the right. Mm. I remember when I joined the Conservative Party, a very senior diplomat saying to me, what on earth are you doing, Rory? The Tory party is the stupid party. That was, that was, that was his view on it at the time. <laughs> no, I, I think, I, I, I guess the other thing is I see quite a lot of, I think on balance, yes, the question is probably right, but I do see a lot of right-wing academic treatises being pumped out. Uh, and I, and I actually think that when you talk about the march of the institutions, I mean, we didn't talk at the main podcast. I mean, this <laughs> BBC chairman, head of the appointments commission who's had to recuse himself because he perceives that he's quite close to him, uh, whose daughter works in Rishi Sunak's policy unit. That all feels very, very cozy in march yeah, of the institutions. I, I, that, that's to me. pretty shocking. I absolutely agree. Thank goodness he recused himself because as yeah. soon as I saw that he'd been appointed, I thought, whoa. Now listen, we do, we do spend a lot of time sort of criticizing, right? Yeah. Yep. So here's one from David Edmund. My MSP, says David, was a brilliant support to me last week. Her name is Shirley Ann Somerville. Her response time and action was on point. Should there not be a platform to shout about MP and MSP local successes? I feel like a few charlatans tar so many with the same brush. Oh, that's lovely. And I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think that, oh, awful things about politics. And I think there are many awful things that politics does to your brain. But there are also fantastic, dedicated local constituency MPs. And, and you know, I, I felt that I, if I sort of reach across the, the board for different people, this will irritate different people in different ways. But, you know, I was a huge admirer um, of various Labour MPs. I, I really like Madeleine Moon, who was in, in Bridgewater, who was on the Defence Committee with me. I've had huge admiration for Richard Bennion, who was a amazing, uh, I mean, a really relaxed, cheerful, honorable, thoughtful, dedicated conservative MP. Tim Farron, this will really irritate my ex-Cumbrian Conservative Party colleagues because we're always <laughs> trying to topple him from his seat. But he was a man who lived Dem, had a really strong reputation in his local seat, took a marginal seat, turned it through hard work into a personal seat through some pretty hard work. I remember one summer when I was trying to measure myself against him. He did something like 42 local surgeries during the summer holidays. So there was barely a day when he wasn't in a different village. I think he was in mm. 42 different places up and down. Mm. Well, maybe we should encourage people to start a new chain on Discord where you can have new subjects that actually to say good things about your MP or MSP or AM or whatever. I'm pretty sure that the that Shirley Ann Somerville, I'm pretty sure is SMP. Yeah, but I, I guess so, which is why I was giving shout outs to other parties there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Related, Sam Proctor, when you say a politician is talented, what do you mean by that? Good at mastering their brief, handling media, doing deals and arm twisting for support, making good decisions, I'd be keen to know. I think really talented politicians are very, very good at framing arguments, making decisions and communicating those decisions as they're made. Okay, so what were your three again then? Framing arguments, making decisions and communicating them as they're made. Well, when I say communicating, I'm, I mean the decision is made and then you follow through. It's good. So I think that my ideal politician is somebody who's effective, but also has a sense of honor or honesty to them. And the risk is that politicians, the worst ministers, are either ineffectual and incompetent or they're effective, but pretty evil. And I think what I love about, you know, I talk about heroes, I've talked about Anna Milburn, my real hero is a man called David Gork, who was uh, my boss when I was in Ministry of Justice. He was extraordinary because he was incredibly clear thinking, very effective, brought some really strong reforms in, but did it with real modesty, no side, 
never really a sense he was trying to promote himself, often didn't take the credit for these things. And I think as a result, got the civil service right behind him so that I imagine even now, years later, people really miss him. Mm. Well, apparently I didn't see it, but apparently he was on Newsnight last night. And according to the Twitter sphere, was doing very, very well. So there you go. Now, here's one that I, I want to dismiss. Jay, I'm going to dis, I'm going to disagree agreeably with Jay yep. Byers. Yes. Should the minimum age to be an MP be 40 plus? By that age, you should know who you are, have made most of your mistakes, be settled, have good judgment, etc. I'm hearing of 22 year olds applying to be a candidate for Labour for Stockton North, and I just shake my head. I want more young people in politics. And I believe you've written a book about it, haven't you? Oh, Rory, stop plugging my book, but what can I do? Published May the 11th. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, we're coming to the end of our question time, but I'm, I'm going to finish with a, a final question from Jeff Keeps Smiling from Discord. He says he would still love A&R to commit to a once-a-month podcast that concentrates on positive achievements from any politicians or impressive people they've come across in their lives think it would be good for mental health in these seemingly never-ending, dark and chaotic times. How about that, Alistair? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. Good. All right. So, well, that, so that basically means that I can talk about Tony Blair. <laughs> uh, you can talk about Alan Milburn. <laughs> uh, then I'll talk about Gordon Brown. Then you can talk about... Uh, Alan Milburn again. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. No, that'd be good. We could do... We could do, we, we could do Heroes of the New Labour Era. We could do Abraham Lincoln. We could do Mandela. We could do... Um, William Marshall, the great knight that I want absolutely. everyone to concentrate on. <laughs> Michel Bardier, the secret Brexit diary. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, thank you, Alistair, very much for a lovely Q&A. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.